By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. So, as I said, we're, we're doing this series on the foundational beliefs of Christianity, and this is, uh, this is designed for those of you who've been here for a while and anybody who is new or just kind of checking out the faith uh, to say, what, what, are these, what are these beliefs? Why are they important? Uh, why should I consider them? If you've missed some, they, they are kind of building upon each other. And so they're always available online. You can go back and listen to any of the previous ones and check those out if you'd like. And I think that going through them in that way might be kind of helpful. So anyway, let's, uh, let's jump into this time of prayer. This prayer is shaped, as I said, around uh, the Lord's Prayer, the one that Jesus taught us to pray. The interesting thing about the Lord's Prayer is he said, pray like this. And then you never again in Scripture see anyone praying those exact words. Uh, it never, never again occurs. And so what I think that that might mean is that he was giving us a pattern for prayer, uh, a pattern and some themes for prayer rather than something to recite. And so because of that, we're adding some, um, some written, um, thoughtful thoughts along with the Lord's Prayer to sort of instill these things in you that you might think how to, how to pray um, out of the pattern that Christ has given us. So um, we're going to take this time right now to, uh, to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're the maker of all things, the author of life, the one whose image we're made in. We come before you to worship you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As you were the founder of peace, you created the world and said that it was good. You rested on the seventh day. We can no longer say, though, that all is well because we labor and worry in vain. We corrupt your creation with our wars, our wicked words, our perverse meditations. Undo the evil and reestablish your kingdom of righteousness and peace. Give us this day our daily bread. As gas prices skyrocket and home prices climb, many of us are working multiple jobs. We feel like no one notices us or loves us or cares. Help us to receive what we truly need from you. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because so much is unfair in the world. We, even us here in this room, have been defrauded, misunderstood, and maligned, betrayed, and ignored when we should have been loved and cared for. Forgive those who have done those things to us because we're guilty of doing all of these things to others and to you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because left to ourselves, we follow patterns that lead to destruction. Your will is to recreate us in your image and deliver the world from decay. Teach us your ways and to to discern your way from the paths of temptation. For to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So may the words of our hearts and the meditations or the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, so this evening, uh, the the theme is creation, and and I'm not giving a sermon so much on how God created the world or exactly what amount of time uh, God created the world 
or anything like that. I'm going to assume a couple things that uh, if you're a Christian here that you do believe that God created the world. That's, that's usually kind of a foundational Christian belief. And for those here who are unsure about it all, um, I would, I'm going to assume that you at least know that Christians believe that and you're, you're open to hearing from that perspective. And frankly, I'm just underqualified to tell you uh, how exactly those things work. I am, I'm, not a, I'm not a scientist. Uh, that's not really my department. But there are a few things to say about creation that I think are important to kind of lay down at the beginning here. And that's to say that the, the Bible definitely teaches that God created everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the idea. And that's to say, uh, what does that mean? Um, that's to say that it was a product of God's creative thoughts and his power to cause existence. And that's, that's really the key things that you need to know. There's probably seven or eight potential orthodox views of how that then occurred. Um, but the most important thing is this was a product of God's thinking and his power to cause existence. But God also, and you see this in the formation of mankind especially, does something of an adaptive reuse. Um, you see this in the creation of man out of dust and woman out of man. Um, there is something to him not just creating out of nothing. He also uh, reuses and adapts that which he has already created. Um, he makes one thing out of another. And finally, God's in the business of recreation or restoration. And you see that uh, all throughout the scriptures. Uh, the Bible bookends with creation. Uh, but then in the end, uh, you don't have a garden, but you have a city. And the idea that we have there is that God has taken the things that we have made, actually, so the city of God that comes down has gates and roads and things that we have made, uh, but they are recreated. They're actually restored and they're made perfect in the end. So the Bible teaches that people are made in the image of God, um, and then people are called to make and create as disciples, to, to create from the realm of the mind, um, ideas, language, songs, um, to create through adaptive reuse and preservation and restoration. So that's kind of the, the big thesis in a way. And now I want to spend the rest of the time on why this matters. Um, why do we need to believe this? Um, is this just good mythology? Um, or is it crucial to life? And what, is it, what does it mean really? How does it, how does it factor into our lives? So kind of the big three ideas here. Why do we need it? Um, how do we kind of own it? How do we really embrace it, I guess, would be another way to say that, and how do we live by it? So here we go. Why do we need it? Um, I'm speaking now to not just to Christians, but I'm saying why do people need a doctrine of creation in general? Um, and here's, here's the big idea. We need it because we attest uh, to believing in it constantly, um, even if we don't mean to. And if you're going to live by something, you should seek to understand and embrace it with consistency. There's, there's the idea. Um, we, we attest to believing it, uh, even if we don't mean to. And if we're going to believe and live by something, we should seek to understand and embrace it consistently. And you might be saying, you know, uh, I know people who don't believe it, actually. I, or maybe you'd say, I don't, I don't think. And so let me explain to you what I mean. So... Paul, uh, in our scripture that, that Peter read to us, said, we are created for good works that God prepared beforehand. And, and what I'm saying is that we, 
as a human race, attest to this constantly. Um, here's one angle. Think about this. There's so many seminars and tests that are built around this idea of discovering who I am and what I am supposed to do, or what do I uniquely offer. There are so many of these because so many people in the world are asking this question of what, who am I, what am I supposed to do, and what do I uniquely have to offer? On top of that, we all believe, um, I, I, can't, I can't think of a single person who doesn't believe in some form of good works or doing what's best. Um, even people who are not great people. You can you know, watch the movies about the, the gangsters in the 20s or whatever, you know, and wow, they're terrible, they're killing, but yes, they're taking care of their little cousins and they're watching out for their family or something like that. Um, Hitler was extremely kind to his dog and was fighting for the advantage of his preferred people. There, even really dark scenes include these ideas of still you should do good to somebody and in, and in some situations. Um, so you can either be motivated by this belief that I have something to offer and I should do good, or you can be destroyed by it, by a sense of falling short constantly of thinking I don't do enough. I'm, I'm not really discovering who I am and I don't do the good that I should do. But either one of those senses is witnessing to an idea that you feel like you do have some form of purpose and calling um, and that we should do what is right and good. Um, I hope that makes sense. The Apostle Paul, in a sense, is agreeing with this idea that we have, that we have a purpose, that we have, that we have something to do, that we have something to offer, that we are made for something um, and that we should do good. He is just asserting to us in the book of Ephesians that you can know how that works and why. He's just saying that that inner impulse that we all feel, that we all live, live out of, that we all act upon, upon, we can know how it works and why and for whom we were created. And therefore, you can find the deepest motive and sustenance for your journey. You can have ground to stand on. So uh, the Bible, of course, anchors this idea in the assertion that we are God's creation. We have a creator, and so does the entire world around us, which means that we have a connection to the entire world of things and other people because all of it has a common source. Um, if we have a creator, and so does everything else, then we do have deep and meaningful relationships with all things, and we have a life that is a calling. And why do I say calling? So the word vocation um, if, you know, if you just break down that word at the beginning, you have this idea like the, the root word for vocation is a call. It's a calling. And to have a calling, you have to have someone who calls you. You have to have a creator. And we, the Bible says, have a creator, and we were called to care for the world, everything in it, and one another. So, okay, that's, that's what the Bible says. What's the alternative? I'll say what you would expect the alternative to be. You'd expect the alternative to be, actually, there's, there's no creator, so we have no responsibility to anything and no connection to anything because there is no calling, there's no purpose behind it. It's all accidental. So the center of your motivation can only be your drive to live and thrive and, you know, 
give something to your family someday. That's, that's what you'd expect, right? In other words, you yourself would be all you really have, and whatever you chose to value would be all that you could really value. The center of your motivation would be yourself. And to be clear, that, that is essentially what modern philosophy and psychology is saying. You are the authority. That's the highest aim. But I'm, I'm saying we act as if we have a calling and are co-responsible for things constantly. I'm going to give you a stark example of this. Woody Allen. Um, if you don't know him, we could put a picture up so you can... Look at his cool glasses, because they are, they are really cool. Um, Woody Allen, mostly because he's such an outspoken public figure. And so here's, here's an atheist who um, w- will say very clearly he has no hope or optimism. Um, he is very aware of this. He's very controversial. He'll, he'll speak out. Um, not everybody in his camp would, would say things the same way that he does. But here's somebody who's saying, look, I've read the philosophers, I have this sense within me, there's no purpose, it's going nowhere. Um, and and he's, he's just very clear, he's consistent, you could say, in his philosophy. And listen to how he describes his creative work, because Woody Allen is, he, he is an incredibly creative man, and he has done tons of work, 50-some-odd films. Um, he works in, in restoration, he, is, he gives his life to his work. Okay. And so somebody asked him, how do you, how do, you do it? And he said, he said this, work, this is in an interview with uh, France 24 television. Work is a wonderful distraction. If you don't have those problems, the problems you have at work, you sit at home and think about real problems, the fact that life is terrible and meaningless. The only people that get any mental peace are self-deluded, who say, my priest or rabbi tells me everything's going to be all right, or some fortune teller tells you some magical solution. And people search for magical solutions. The only way out of the human predicament is through magic, though I don't think there is such a thing. I keep hoping there will be a magic trick, but I've never seen one, he says. Then he he goes on. When you're younger, you think everything's important, but then you realize that eventually you die, the sun burns out, the earth is gone, and all the stars and universe disappear, and nothing's left, nothing at all, nothing that Shakespeare made or Beethoven or Michelangelo Um, there's a lot of noise and sound and fury, and it's all going no place because every 100 years, a big toilet flushes, and everybody on earth changes, and a new new set comes in, and they're all worried and anxious, and then they're gone. There you go. That's that's kind of a consistent alternative. Um, And, you know, that's doomsday preaching, right? Like, that's like, that's doom. But then he says, he goes on, and he says, now, you can't actually live life like that, because otherwise you just sit there. Then he kind of sits there for a second. He says, it's the job of the artist to figure out why you'd want to go on living. You know, you have to, knowing the worst, figure out why it's still worthwhile, and that's a tough assignment. And that's sort of the conclusion of the thought. And you see, he never really can put words into why he creates and works so hard, because he, of all people, could actually afford to just sit, right? Most people, you just would die. But he, he could afford to just sit, but he can't do it. He creates 50 films, gives to charity, restores damaged film. Now, Alan may be an extreme example, but he's just clear. He's, 
stating the prevalent philosophy. He, he knows Nietzsche. He knows Freud. He knows Eugene O'Neill. People who have worked out and written volumes and volumes of work on what a consistent philosophy of life looks like if there's no origin at all. And interestingly, all of those people who he's read and who he knows gave their lives to their work and their creative endeavors um, and all seem to defy their beliefs by working very illogically hard and with excellence. They lived as if they had something that needed to be offered, that people needed to hear, as if their thoughts and good work were necessary, as if they had some form of calling, that they needed to share all this information with the world. So I'm suggesting we need a foundational belief in creation to justify our inner orientation to the value of our work. Um, it just can actually make sense. This is where those philosophies break down, so why can't I live by my own philosophy? So we need it to justify our inner orientation to the value of our work and, and our personhood, and even to our potential sense of failure, which also points that we, to the fact that we inwardly believe there's work that's worth doing, and we should do it well, okay? We also need it for the sake of justice. For those of you who know um, Woody Allen's story, there have been a lot of accusations about his personal and professional life. Um, he's a very controversial figure, um, and he seems to defy them fairly consistently. Um, he doesn't bow, you see, to somebody else's view of what he's done or what he should do. So one interviewer was confronting him on how he'd... Um, married some of his, his wife's adopted daughter. Uh, he, he married her as soon as she was of legal age. And he, he had been accused of this and accused of other uh, issues. And, and he said, at one point, he kind of slipped and said, why would I care? <laughs> and, and oops, you know, maybe shouldn't have said that. But, but that's the, the dark side of the true, the true creative and emotional person driven by inward desires alone. Because why would you care to submit it to anyone else's definition of the good? I don't know. If there's no creator, why would you? If you're not an understeward of a creator, who could tell you what's wrong or evil outside of your own appraisal? And we as a society want to hold people accountable very, very much. We see the need for it. We see problems. We want to do it. We want to hold sexual predators like Woody Allen might be accountable. We want to hold Vladimir Putin accountable. The list goes on and on, but, but on what basis could we ever do such a thing? And we consider it dark and evil when they say, why should I care? But if there's no creator, then we who care are the ones who are inconsistent, not them. I was just listening to a podcast, and it reminded me that our culture um, is post-Christian. But what that means, that's, that gets tossed around a lot, but here's what it means to be post-Christian. Being post-Christian means that most of our methods of doing things and our ideals were built out of a Christian framework, or at least a deist framework, that there was a God. But today, we are trying to do the same things without the, the underlying beliefs. So... We are trying to do moral shaping and justice, right? That, that were Christian works that were built out of kind of a Christian ideal, but with different tools. 
And it's making it difficult because it's hard to find common ground and you start seeing your society sort of split apart and take sides over two different visions of what morality means and what justice means. And without God and a revelation or scripture that can make sensible and discernible statements about that, without God, those concepts are fluid. Morality and justice are just in the eye of the beholder. So you're truly just fighting for my morality, my justice. Woody Allen's morality can be whatever fulfills him, right? His understanding of right and wrong can dictate that. He can be true to himself. Um, John Simon shared a video about why Vladimir Putin is doing what he's doing. And I, I told him, I said, you know what's hard about this video and troubling is you can start to understand the guy. Because as soon as you, as you watch this and you go, oh, so this land used to belong to him and he sees NATO as actually a potential threat to their, their peace and their freedom and he sees resources that are really critical for his country being taken or you know, that he doesn't have access to them and the flourishing, he, his, his population is down and all this stuff and you start to go, uh-oh, he's understandable. Um, he just believes he's, he's defending his people from an impending future threat. We can all talk ourselves into something like that, right? I remember I actually read uh, Barack Obama's uh, autobiography, his most recent one, and he talked about a conversation with Vladimir Putin where Vladimir Putin kind of said to him, you realize you and the Americans don't have a moral high ground on these issues that you're accusing me of, right? He knows what he's talking about. He knows our history, right? But we don't generally look at something like that and go, okay, fine, slaughter the Ukrainians. We don't. We don't look at that and go, then it's fine, I guess. It's your truth. Like you, I guess I can see your perspective. You know, another maternity ward. We don't. Why not? Why don't we buy it? Why do we want accountability for sexual assault? Why do we want accountability for humanitarian crimes? Why do we want justice and peace? Why do we want the standard for that to be higher than ourselves so even if we're found guilty of the same thing, it still matters? And that's not the trump card. We live in the world as if it's created with meaning as if lives matter, as if hearts and souls matter, as if ideas and creative endeavors are worth the time and worth saving. So we need a foundational belief that makes sense of this. We need a doctrine of creation so we can apply it consistently. So if we had it, how could we own that belief? How could we kind of embrace that belief and live out of it? And, and, in Paul, in Ephesians 2, he uses this language. We are God's workmanship. We are created. And that means a lot of things. Um, a creator, a good creative, see, knows how their work is made, what their workmanship is made for, and how it works best. They know how their work is made, what their workmanship is made for, and how it works best. I, I, I turned on the radio um, Probably had it on for about 15 minutes on one little stretch of, of roadway. And I kid you not, there's, maybe it's just God at work, but every time I turn on uh, you know, 89.1 NPR, they're talking about God. 
every time for me. I, I probably tune in at just the right moments. But I, I swear to you, I turn it on, and the words coming out of the lady's mouth were, I was reading the Bible the other day. And I went, okay. Turns out it's an author, uh, Nana Brew Hammond. And she was talking about a book, a children's book she'd written on the color blue. Um, and she was asked how she came up with the idea. And she was reading the Bible. Uh, and she'd noticed in the design of the temple that there were these blues and purples for very specific things. And so she was probably reading like Exodus 26, uh, 31. says, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, and it will be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate you from the holy place from the most holy. So she's reading this, and here's where her head goes as a creative person. She says, what's with the, the blues and the purples? What's the, what's the significance, right? Which, by the way, um, if, you're, if you're into craft, craftsmanship or work or art or, or anything like that, slow down when you read the details of the temple because you're going to appreciate the creativity and the detail orientation there. Um, but this author, Brew Hammond, reads this and wonders why it's so significant. And she starts to do some research and finds out in this time and in this place, to get blue, you have to have a particular slug. And to get that slug, you can normally get about a drop of blue. And so to make a curtain that is mostly blue would have been extremely, extremely difficult and expensive. And this would have been something of immense value and is very rare. And then she started chasing down other things about the color blue and, and learned about how blue stones and, and plants like indigo had been found and were crushed and turned into pottery and dyes. And she learned just how much work and creativity had to go into the color blue, which why would people like the color blue? Well, it's one that they just see every day when they look at the sky, right? There's, it's, just, it's like everywhere, but so hard to make. And there's an interesting thing where the color blue didn't even have a name because people couldn't make it for the longest time. It was something they could not reproduce. And she learned about it in light of its significance to God and said, why did God want that color in his temple? And then she began to think about just all the work it took and how much it was worth, its value, and what that spoke when, when they did that work and they created of something of such value and put it in the temple. Um, see, God knows how his creation is made and therefore knows its value. When God told him to make a blue curtain, he knew how hard it would be to make. He understood its value. Now think, think of how hard... We, humanity discovered the color blue a long time ago, Right? Think about how much longer it took us to understand the human genome, how much value it must have, hmm? because it's so difficult to make. And then there's a the question of purpose. God, God knows why he made us like a good craftsman and knows how we work best, which can be hard to submit to. That's probably one of the biggest challenges 
in our modern time is to have this idea that um, there's a way that I work best, and I would submit to that. A repeated theme in the Bible is the potter and the clay. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. Imagine saying this to God like in prayer. You are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. You are the work of, or we are all the work of your hand. And in case you think that modern times are so different than ancient times, um, before that, before that prayer in Isaiah 45 Um, God has to remind his people, he says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. I love that little piece, handles. Like here's somebody questioning, not just against their form, but against their function. They're saying like some pots have handles. Why don't I have any? Just a simple little question, but to, to question, even rebel against one's former function. Why'd you make me this way? Why didn't you make me like that? At my store, we carry a lot of handmade things, and I know the people that, that make them, so I brought a few just to talk about here. This is a bowl. It's made by Sean. And some of you know Sean. And this is made out of glass fiber reinforced concrete. I've worked with it quite a bit over the years. And so this is uh, a new, newer technology in which concrete has a specific additive that bonds to glass fibers so that you can cast it really thin. Normally, concrete has to have, you know, like a stone aggregate in it, so it'd have to be extremely thick. But here it can be, here it's about a quarter inch in some spots, and it's still really durable. And so this is a really, it's a really interesting uh, little, little bowl, right? But it's not for food, and you can't put it in the microwave, because if you do, it will explode. Um, and that will ruin it and your life for the day. And, uh, and also, it's, it's porous. So if you, you know, put your cereal and your milk in here, you're going to have milk living inside of it, and it will not be good. And you could get sick later. And so um, Sean makes these, and he has to tell people, don't, don't do that. Don't use it for food. It's, it could be decorative. You could put nuts in a shell in here. That would work. Um, but otherwise, it's not a food dish. Okay, and, and I can tell you, it matters to him how you use the things that he makes. It does, okay? So there's that one. Um, this mug uh, is made by our friend Julia, and so it can handle food because she glazes it. So she glazes the inside so you could drink your coffee out of it, and, but it's, it's stoneware, and so you cannot put it in the dishwasher. You will wreck it, and, and you also can't microwave it. Okay, and so she knows you can you can use it for certain things, but there are certain ways you have to treat it. And some people look at it and they go, "That's not worth it." But other people go, "I love the texture. I love how handmade it feels." And so they decide, "I'll hand wash it, and uh, I'll heat up the beverage and something else and pour it in." Right? And so, but it but it can't. It's not made to do everything. And she cares about that because she doesn't want to see her stuff getting damaged. She wants to see it, it valued and, and treated um, for the value that it has. And then, because at our store we'd like to have something you could put in the dishwasher, um, we order these recycled glass, uh, little, little glasses. And these are made on a machine, um, but they're made out of recycled glass, which our customers appreciate. Um, but you can, you can do just about anything with it, but they're not nearly as durable. So they do crack, they are glass, that's what happens. 
but you can you could put them in the dishwasher and and all that works. Um, and so you know, but we'll tell people like, yeah, I mean they're they're recycled glass, but you got to be you got to be careful with them. But you can use them in all these different ways. And and people are constantly asking us, how do I use this? How do I take care of this? This matters to people, right? All these things have their place, and and their makers know and must tell us how they work best. And to ignore that isn't freedom. Um, to ignore that is actually destruction. And I know it actually hurts the makers when they see their work is misused. We need a foundational belief in creation because we need a belief to anchor the way we all live um, that isn't just magic but a maker. And we own it when we see that the maker knows how and why and the value of his workmanship and we listen to him. We consult him. We, we value the things that he's made. And allow, um, that allows us to discover our value and purpose as well, which is what we need. So how do we live out of such a belief? Um, I'm going to take cues from all the things we've uh, discussed so far and give us four how-tos. The first one is uh, look up. The author of that book, Blue, hired an artist to do the artwork, and he said one of the big themes in the book was all of the kind of transcendence. There was a lot of looking, looking up in her book. She talked about how people had looked up to the heavens, and they thought about worship in some way, shape, or form um, when they thought of the color blue. And then she even took blue into things like the blues itself, like the, uh, the music. But that also was kind of a, a speaking out, a reaching out beyond uh, oneself for, for hope, meaning, comfort, uh, guidance, and all these things. So this book and this artist got this idea, like this, this created thing, this color, that, this really interesting color that was discovered by this woman in the Bible teaches you to look, look up. It makes space for you to look beyond yourself for hope, meaning, guidance, comfort. And the creation itself can actually prompt you to do that, just like the color blue did for her. Sometimes something can prompt you to go, what, what, why is this? What, what is the purpose of this? Sometimes it's, it's an animal. Sometimes it's a plant. Um, the, this, uh, oh, what's the ship that they just discovered down in the, uh, in the Arctic? I'm forgetting the, the, anyway, 1915 shipwreck they found underneath um, the, and down in the sea. And there are all of these unique creatures on it that can only live on the ship because they, they have to live in this kind of climate, but that climate often doesn't have much structure or anything for them to live on. So this old shipwreck's under there, and they're finding all these unique species that can only live on the ship. It's, it's incredible. And you look to them, and you go, what, are they, what does this mean? Where does this come from? What, how does this thing even exist? And you can, you can look beyond it. And you can especially do that in light of the Scripture, the first foundation um, and that's how that book, Blue, was, was inspired. She saw significance in God's eyes, and it helped this color be significant and inspiring in this case, and it pointed her to the creator. Um, another way you can live out such a belief is to create meaningful things in meaningful ways. Um, I wish, and, and this is something that really, like, we think about at our store is that some of the makers we work with would come to see that it's not only their work that is so valuable, but it's them 
right? Because like their work, they are created, and even more so. And that like their work, they would, would have far more sense of purpose if they could know their creator and what they were made for and how they were made. Long to see that. But so many of us have a negative view of our work. Um, and work, truly, it's under a curse. It can be frustrating and tiresome. But it is also good, and it could be better. We were made for good works, is what our scripture this evening says. We were made for good works. And not only that, God prepared us for the very ones that we have. So there's a meaning to them. There's a purpose to them. We should see that, look for that, seek that, pray for that. One way to live out of this belief is to invest in the good of your work. That might mean you create new and beautiful things. It might mean that you look for the brokenness in your work and do something about it. It might mean that you make and do things that work well and serve others well. It's a way to serve. Or you might see your work as a way to heal the brokenness in the world. And a lot of our work is necessary because of the brokenness. That's why it's there. But you can move your work in the direction of goodness and purpose. Um, This is one way way to connect with God being the potter and us the clay, is to take the clay that God has given you, your work, and make it more meaningful, more beneficial, and to connect it more to the purposes of God. And also because God creates from nothing, um, we can create new ideas, new works of art, new things. But he also adaptively reuses and restores so we can invest in healing, restoring, and salvation. In my book that I wrote, um, one of the things that I've heard the most from people who've read it, um, this is the one about my dad, um, and, the, and the old truck was I've heard people say that it's connected them and made them think about ev- either their father or their children, and it's brought emotional healing. But one of the, the catalysts for that was me finding a, an old truck for sale on Craigslist that didn't run that was under a walnut tree and getting to meet an old farmer named Dwight and fixing up the truck. So there's this, this earthly version of restoration that takes place but in that story and telling that story, there's able to be you know, something that honestly surprised me to hear a couple of the people that reached out and said, that, that really helped me. It brought, it brought emotional, uh, spiritual even, restoration. Okay? So we can do that. And for, for me, that, it, it, those of you who are around for my part of that journey, I was in a time of weakness and loss and pain. Um, you don't have to be in a good place, right, to be used by God. We can live it out by seeking justice consistently. Um, in the exploration of the color blue in this book, the author came across instances of deep brokenness um, because this, this color blue was rare uh, and it became a symbol of wealth and privilege and so it became very connected with slavery and greed and literally people would kill for the color blue. Um, there, were, there were many uh, situations in which people were enslaved uh, to get the stones or the plant, the indigo plant. Um, and, and this color blue, it really, it could be just corrupted in some people's eyes if you look at it throughout, throughout history um, because of the deep brokenness that came about because of it. And so often, um, 
really always, God's most beautiful gifts get tarnished by the presence and practice of all forms of sin. For example, the ideas of, think about these ideas, protection, growth, uh, success. Those are all good words, right? But if you take them outside of their intended bounds, just to return to the Putin-Ukraine thing, those are the aims of this war. Protection, growth, success. Um, You can take good things and inject a sinful motive or willingness to like override the humanity of somebody else and do something awful with them, um, just like people did with this color blue. But who does have the right to say you can't pursue them? Well, if there's a creator, we can point past our fallible past, even confess it as sin, and still say this is where it ends. When I, when I was writing, I wrote that, and, and I had a movie scene come into my mind, and I went and rewatched it, and I thought, that's really helpful. So Born Ultimatum, um, in, the, in the last movie where Jason Bourne is coming up to the, to the building where it all started for him, right? Where he, if, if you've seen that, I'll try not to wreck the whole thing for you. But he's coming up to this building where he's going to confront the people who trained him, who made him, you know, kind of a war machine, essentially. And there's a, another lady there who's within, within the, the government who's been helping him. And, she said, why? and he said, why are you helping me? And she said, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't who we are. And Jason Bourne looked at her and he said, then do something about it. And she said, come with me. It'll be better if we both go in. And he said, this is where it started for me. This is where it ends, right? And it's like, here's somebody who's in a corrupt bureaucracy. Here's a man who is built to kill saying, it doesn't, we can do something. This can end. Even though we've been guilty of it, we've been part of the system, this can end. And we can do that if there's a creator, if there's something outside of ourselves that isn't just the one who made us, but who can forgive and restore. Because then our broken, failed past doesn't have to define everything. We can say it ends here. If there's a redemptive creator, we can't. And not just on the world stage. We can do that with our family sins, even with our own sins. We can change. We can repent. That's what that word means. It means this ends here. Repentance is, I was going this direction for this reason. Because of the hope of Jesus, because of grace, I can turn around and go a different direction for a different reason. And that previous action of mine doesn't have to define me for the rest of my life. Because our God is just, and he's the avenger, but he's also a restoration specialist. If there's a creator, then there's a standard and an ultimate judge, but our ultimate judge is also a redeemer, which is, leads to our final, how do we do it? We rest in Jesus. This is a key piece of the doctrine of creation. The beautiful thing about the foundational belief of creation is that even God, the creator of all things, rested in his good work. I mean, this is, this is foundational of the Christian faith. This is the beginning of the Bible. He creates all these things, and in six days, on the seventh day, he rests, and he says it was good. 
If we aren't the ultimate source of creative work or goodness or hope, then we can put down our work too. We can trust that our work ultimately leans on God's work, and we don't have to actually avoid rest so we don't fall into despair or think about the horrible meaninglessness of it all. Did you hear that in Woody Allen earlier? Why he works is to distract himself. Um, It's to keep himself from thinking about the horrible reality. I mean, think about that, that you have to work to not think about the horrible reality. Um, What a gift to be able to rest and enjoy God's work and even the work of our hands, even though it's imperfect and incomplete. Even more than that, we can rest in God's work of our restoration. Paul opens another letter uh, to the church in Philippi with this. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And what he means by the day of Jesus Christ is the day that Jesus returns and restores all things. That's the day he's talking about. Um, and, that, and he's speaking uh, there of Jesus will restore all creation, all work that was done in creation, the planet itself, and the cosmos. And the, and the Bible dis- declares that that is also the day of our restoration. And it's the greatest reason that we can rest. We don't just rest from our work, from our progress, but we can rest from our improvement and from fixing ourselves because Jesus has taken that upon himself. He's the ultimate savior. That's why we return every week to the Lord's Lord's table. Jesus has said, this is my body broken for you. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. And this is the pinnacle, if you will, of God's creative and redemptive work. And it's done on our behalf. This is the creator, the word that was with God at the very beginning, entering in to restore his rebellious and broken people at great cost. And all restoration is very costly. Have you ever thought about that? Why do we do that? Like, why do we save beautiful buildings? Why does Woody Allen try to save all the old films? Why do we save the artwork? Why do we do it? Because they're worth so much, right? They're worth so much. As God's creatures, as his creation those who bear his image, God was willing to, in, willing to enter in and suffer at a great cost to himself, at his death. How much must we be worth to him? How much should that speak to us about his worth as our creator? And his capability, his willingness, his creativity that was put to work, not only to make us, but to restore us from our brokenness. And if that's true, then we can rest in him. We can rest to enjoy his creative presence and the hope that he gives, rest to receive his saving work for us because there's nothing more to do. If any of you are thinking like, yeah, I'm not really that great, you're right. But there's nothing more to do. He's done it. You can rest in him. Receive who he is and what he has done. At this time, I'm going to pray for us that we would be able to see this, and we're going to enter into two minutes of, of time before, before God, before the creator, before the, 
the one who does the work of restoration. And you can ask him any questions that you have during that time. It'll be silent just for you. You can confess anything you need to confess. You can ask him to restore you. Um, Or you can just worship him for being a good creator. After that, Mike's going to lead us out with singing. There's always giving in the back. The meat's going to start going into the boiled water and get ready to eat. It's going to be delicious, and we probably have potatoes too, I think. It turned out to be a meat potluck, right? It's kind of what we accidentally did there. Um, and then during music, I'll come up and serve you the Lord's Supper. And, and for those of you who, who can say, even, even just with a little bit of faith, like you don't have to be like, I'm so sure, but if you say, I, you know what, I, I think I just want to believe that God made me and restores me, um, and I'm trying, he'll take that. And he'll complete the good work that he's started in you. So you're welcome to come to the table by faith. I'm going to pray for us and leave that two minutes of silence. Father, thank you for this time to get, bef- get together and, uh, and to speak about these things, to think about your creative work and your restoration. Thank you for this community of people that you brought together, for the ones that are here, the ones who are on Zoom, uh, the ones who are out of town. We, we thank you for all of the people that, that you've brought together in our community, for the, for the church of our city um, that you've built, for the, the worldwide church, um, for those who are in times of peace and for those who are suffering through times of war. We pray that you would comfort all and give them a deep sense of your presence, your work, and your great redemptive promise of hope. I pray that no matter what we're facing, that you would help us to rest in you. So as we come before you, um, we pray that we would experience you the way that you've declared yourself to be, you're kind and you're merciful. That whenever we confess our sins to you, your first impulse toward us is to be merciful and to hear our sins and to forgive us and to restore us. Thank you for being so good. We pray before you that you would enrich our souls in your creative goodness.